Hello and a warm welcome to the June episode of the Uxbridge FM podcast. Hope you're well. It's a long one this month. We're finding out who's decorating the post boxes in the area. We're looking into space with the Astronomical Society. There's some memories of Uxbridge from George Cooper. News on some scams to watch out for. A bit of history from the Family History Society. And finally, some gardening tips from orchard expert Jerry Edwards. By the way, if you want to get in touch or want to take part in the podcast, do email studio at uxbridgefm.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. First off, we're talking postbox toppers. Let's chat to Fran Tracy, who, with her group, is busy crocheting fun decorations for the tops of postboxes. First of all, where did you get the idea from the postbox toppers? Uh, Sarah Green, whose idea this is, to be honest, she's the other co-founder of the group. She came up with the idea of postbox toppers. So we did about three or four for Valentine's Day in the first instance, and then it grew after that. So how many are we up to now in the area? Oh, we've got well over 40. We're just working through putting up our summer ones. So there's a few more to go up. We did about 40 plus for Easter, Mother's Day and spring. And now we're renewing them all for the summer. And what's your sort of favourite ones that are in the area? Are they sort of topical ones? My personal favourite? That's quite difficult because I make them as well. So... We have a a loose theme, such as spring, or now we've got summer. We've got some wonderful camper vans. We've done one with a Lido theme locally. There's such a diverse range, really. And how long did it take to make one? It takes quite a few hours. Some of them are made by individuals, so some of them, one person made the whole thing. Others are made quite collaboratively. So quite a few of them, someone will make, one person will make the base and then a team of people will make the bits and pieces to go on the top. There's quite a lot of hours of work involved, but it's all done from love, really. Other other knitting groups around the country doing similar things, do you know? Yes. I mean, most of them are actually crochet rather than knit, although there is knitting on them as well. Yes, they're national and international. I I have a feeling that they first started out somewhere like Texas. But yes, they're all across the country. The group came out of lockdown, to be honest. We wanted something to bring people together during lockdown. And then the idea was that it would give a number of us something to do during lockdown, but also have an impact on the community at large. So it was kind of collaborative amongst our group, but then something that would brighten up the area as well. And there's a charity aspect to them too. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. No. Each of them has a QR code attached. So if someone can zap it with their mobile phone and it will take them straight to the donate page of the chosen charity. And there's a huge variety of charities. And can you give us some locations? I mean, we're in Uxbridge, but um, I guess there's Ickenham and Ryslip. Where can we watch out for those designs? The best way to find them is to go onto the Spreading Sunshine Facebook group and there's a map of them all on there. Ah, right. And one of, one of their admins has done a, a Google map of them all, which she's keeping up to date. And then there's another batch of them in Ickenham as well. That's a separate group from us. But, but I mean, they're spread all over the Ryslip and East Coat area. They go right up to sort of the Pinner borders. There's a really lovely hungry caterpillar one near Pinner. And then they go down into South Ryslip and 
Ryslip Manor as well. Oh, great. Well, thanks for carrying on brightening up our day, even though we're hopefully coming out of lockdown soon. Oh, yes. Well, we're not going to stop because of that. It's had such a fabulous response that, yes, we're not going to stop because of that. It's been too positive a project, really. So, yes, we're definitely keeping going. We're planning things for autumn and Christmas as well now and for Poppy Day. Yeah, fantastic. Well, good luck with it all and thanks for chatting. Okay, you're welcome. And that Facebook group Fran mentioned is Spreading Sunshine and Smiles, East Coat and Ricelip. And there you'll find a map of all the decorated boxes. Next up, how's your knowledge of space? And how about learning more about what's beyond Earth? Stuart Coulter is from Wallace, the West of London Astronomical Society. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Steve. How long has it been going, by the way? It's been going since 1967. It was formed in the middle of the Apollo missions, and that created a great deal of excitement amongst young people. Quite a number of societies did start in that period. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, interesting sort of science and STEM subjects. Very much so, because um, Tim Peake, who went into space a couple of years ago, one of his missions was to increase interest in science and the STEM subjects. And the fact that America is going back to the moon in a couple of years' time, I hope the audience realise that, but in a couple of years' time, young people are going to live through a similar experience that I did in the uh, 1960s. Yeah. So you meet um, in Uxbridge and in Harrow, is that right? That's right. We've got two centres. We are the West of London Astronomical Society, but our homes are essentially Uxbridge and Harrow, Hillingdon and Harrow. That's where the bulk of our activities take place, yes. And if anybody wants to come and take part or visit the club, anything they need to have or is it just turn up? And no, no, not at all. Not at all. We cater for all levels. There are some real experts in the uh, society, but also there are absolute beginners and everybody is welcome. We're particularly keen to get young people involved and we have supported them on one occasion when somebody offered the society a telescope. We didn't have any use of it, but uh, we passed it on to one of these school's A-level students. So we do like to support young people in particular. You certainly don't need a telescope. You need an interest. And we're hoping to get back to real meetings in September. Guests are always welcome at our meetings. Out of an audience of about 50, uh, each time we will have at least half a dozen guests. And they are welcome to attend one or two times. If they come a third time, then we do expect them to join by then. It's very much a try-before-you-buy uh, policy that we, we have. And what tends to be the format of a, of a meeting? What do you get up to there? Well, a typical meeting is going to be an hour's talk by somebody on a subject of interest. That will be for about an hour, followed by questions and answers. Then the secretary will make any announcements and the uh, observing director will tell us about what's in the sky and show us images that uh, members have, have submitted to him in the, in the last month. And you have, I suppose, some club telescopes that you use as well and equipment? We do. When the society was formed in 1967, an instrument was very expensive and frankly not very good. But now you can pick up a very good telescope for £200. And if you want any advice on looking for a telescope at that sort of a price, I recommend that you go to popastro.co.uk. It's the website of the Society for Popular Astronomy and seek out the advice there on choosing telescopes. It's very good and very comprehensive. Just thinking about telescopes for the moment, if I get a, a sort of £200 telescope, how far into space can I see with that? 
Well, you can see many millions of light years with the naked eye. The furthest you can see is about two and a half million light years. That's the Andromeda galaxy, which is just about visible to the naked eye. Uh, in London, if, if you've got good dark skies, it's quite easily visible in the countryside. But uh, with the telescope, it's not so much distance as much as detail. Uh, you can see all of the craters on the moon. You can see the moons of Jupiter. The most beautiful sight in the, in the sky is Saturn. That really does draw gasps from the public when, when they see it for the first time. It really is a stunning sight. And I guess you've been interested in space basically all your life. I know you're a physics teacher, so that probably all links in together. Yes, that's true. But I think I was interested in astronomy before I was born. You, <laughs> okay. Is there life on other planets, do we think? There's got to be. That's a belief, which is thinking something to be true without the evidence. Yeah. No, there's bound to be. I, I think if they find life existed on Mars in the past, that's too in our solar system, and that greatly increases the chances of it being elsewhere. I do believe it is out there. Whether we will ever make contact with them, I don't know. And Stephen Hawking's view is that we shouldn't. But our radio telescopes are now so powerful that if on the far side of the galaxy a civilization had a radio telescope the size of Arecibo, which is now sadly uh, lost to us, but if they had a telescope of that size, we could pick up their signal. So we could communicate with the other side of the galaxy. But let's not forget, if they sent us a signal and we replied, there would be something like about 200,000 years between them sending the signal and getting our reply. And I guess they wouldn't know what we're talking about initially. No, no, no that's, that's another thing. Uh, we can only look for life as we know it. Maybe there are life of other types, but uh, as we don't know what they are, we don't know what to look for. And given, if you're offered the chance, I know there's a, a couple of teams that are doing tourist trips. Would you go on a space trip, do you think? I have little doubt that I would. I would have absolutely jumped at it some time ago. I'm a little bit more reluctant now, but uh, I, I don't think I'd pass the test anyway. Are oh, there various tests out there? Oh, absolutely. Yes. One thing that Wolas did, we went on an eclipse trip and we went to Star City in Moscow and we were shown around by an engineer who tried to become an astronaut, but he failed on the centrifuge test, which he now controls. Ah, yes, the centrifuge test. No, it's, it's quite severe. You've got to be really physically, physically very fit to become an astronaut. I'm sure the centrifuge test has other names. Um. <laughs> I, I think so, yes. When you're pulling 9G, you're feeling nine times your weight. So give us an idea of what other things you get up to at Wellas. I know you do observing days. We have our monthly meetings. We have a weekend away in Wales at a dark sky site. But particularly for the audience, we hold public observing sessions at the Ryslip Lido twice a year in the autumn and in the spring. Our next date's penciled in, fingers crossed. November the 12th, 13th and 14th. Ah, that's a date for the diary. I shall definitely try and get to that. That's in the Lido car park, I assume. That's in the Lido car park. And there's probably hot drinks and things. There is a cafe, the Turntable Cafe, run by the Railway Society. They have opened in the past. They are normally open uh, in the evenings for refreshments. Yes. 
And then um, you go on weekends away as well. To, you mentioned Wales to me before. Yes, we do go to uh, southern Wales inland to a very good uh, bed and breakfast, which we take over for the weekend. And it's got very good hard standing. It's, it's, it's really excellent. Uh, listeners would be surprised at the quality of images that some of our members can take even in the city, post-processing using computers means that you can get rid of a lot of light pollution. But the delight in amateur astronomy is, is not so much imaging, but a couple of our members are eminent imagers. But the delight in astronomy is looking with the naked eye. And you can't see these objects with the naked eye easily from London. Uh, so we go to the countryside for dark skies so that we can see them with the eye. And no doubt there's a, a call for a, a good pub around the corner as well. I oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so where can we find more information on Wallace? Uh, I recommend that people go to wallace.org.uk. We also have a Facebook presence. There are some videos also on YouTube, so you can look at past meetings on YouTube. Uh, but those are our three principal outlets. We are hoping to get back to normality to have meetings in person in September. And if you look at our site, you'll see what the next coming meeting is, and you're more than welcome to come up and try before you buy. Fantastic. So I know you're the, the outreach officer. If there's any schools or, or scouts or, or clubs listening, can they get in touch with you and perhaps get someone over to talk to them about astronomy? Yes, certainly. Scouting groups now, they attend a sleepover at the Battle of Britain bunker twice a year in normal times. But yes, if you are interested in doing astronomy badges, do get in touch with me at worldas.outreach at gmail.com and uh, we'll see what we can do. Well, thanks, Stuart. That's fantastic. And I shall uh, definitely be getting more into my astronomy, possibly even buying a telescope. It's Good. Great. Excellent. We'll choose wisely and look at popastro.org.uk first. Yeah. Thank you very much. Stuart Coulter there from the West of London Astronomical Society. Now, how long have you lived in the area? Hopefully our next chat will conjure up some memories if you've lived in Uxbridge for a while. Right, let's chat to George Cooper now. Hello, George. How are you? Absolutely fine. Now, quick intro. You've lived in Hillingdon all your life, mainly in Uxbridge. You were first elected councillor in 1980, is that right? Something like that. Representing North Uxbridge Ward. And during your time as a councillor, you served on many committees, social services, education, audits, planning. You're currently a governor at St Mary's Catholic Primary School. And your wife, Judith, is also a councillor representing Uxbridge South. I bet your conversations in the house are unbelievable. They certainly used to be. Um, I now try to keep well clear of this, but one of the things we used to find very useful, unfortunately, the Electoral Commission decided to put the border between the two uh, wards right down the middle of the high street, completely oblivious oh. of the fact that the two sides of the high street actually have similar issues. <laughs> so, for example, when it came to things like uh, St Margaret's Church and the Oasis Cafe wanting financial help, we often found it very useful to work together. And we would do things like uh, sort out grants for them, uh, for chairs and tables. The various local groups, of course, draw people from both sides, both communities. They're not separate entities. 
they're all the people of Uxbridge. So when it came to things like the Scouts, the Boys and Girls Brigade and things, we would often split the costs. But that was the sort of thing that would get discussed over the kitchen table. Tell us about growing up in Uxbridge when you were young. You mentioned before we started recording about going to all the lovely fates and uh, shows in the area. You also mentioned the bomb site near where you live, the bommy on Chilton View Road. Uh, it's a bit of a different time then, I suppose. It was indeed. I started out going to school at Whitehall School, which is currently just at the bottom of our garden fence. It's still there. Indeed, my wife taught there for a while did part-time work there later on. And it used to be a joke that if a member of staff went sick, they'd shout over the garden fence, can you come in? <laughs> um, but it was a different world then. Things were on a much smaller, more intimate scale. For example, you come to us nice sunny weather like we've got at the moment in June, and you get to the weekend and you'd be looking in the local paper in the days when we had a real local paper. Yeah. And it would be full of things going on, school fates, local societies, local groups organising summer fairs and things. And it could be anything from a big one like uh, Hillington Hospital fate, which was probably the bee's knees of the fates around here, through to uh, literally little local groups organising them, whether it was the Manaway Residents Association or whether it was the uh, Uxbridge Moor Residents Association. And they would have... Uh, a few stalls, a few games to play. And then in addition to that, you'd have the sort of the jumble sales and the fun. All of that, I'm afraid, seems to have gone. And I don't know whether it's just the movement of population, the groups have gone. I know now lots of organisations find it very hard to get people to replace members when they mm. move on. Yeah. And that could be the problem. I suppose in the recent past, it's partly COVID, isn't it, that's prevented these things happening. But as you say, there's also a risk management um, issue, isn't there? You have to fill out lots of paperwork before you have a fate these days. Health and safety. So um, what was your sort of favourite um, haunts when you were young? Where did you go out and what did you... What, I suppose you've seen a lot of changes in the, in the town centre. You've seen the ring road being developed. Going out, I used to like going for walks and out on my bike. Yeah. We would sort of cycle around the area, We'd go up to Uxbury Swimming Pool and the open-air ones. In fact, one of the things I used to regularly get as a birthday present was an annual season ticket to Uxbury Swimming Pool, oh, wow. the open-air one. That was a real experience, going up there on your bike. Pretty chilly, I guess, as well. It could be. I mean... <laughs> It was before the day. I think we were a lot tougher in those days. I mean, you mentioned health and safety and risk assessments and things. Those were alien concepts. Yeah. Um, you know, you you took the risk in your own hands. If you jumped in the water and it was perishing cold, you got out PD quick. <laughs> um, you didn't sit in there and wait to get hypothermia and rely on someone to come and hook you out and wrap you in a tin foil blanket like a Christmas turkey. <laughs> Obviously, the, the ring road construction in the 60s was quite controversial, wasn't it, in the town? Oh. We lost um, the vicarage garden. We lost Kate Fassinger's garden, all in the name of improvements. Sacrificed on the altar of modernisation. <laughs> and now we look at something like the pavilions and, um, and think, uh, oh, look, the concrete's beginning to break up. When's this due for demolition? <laughs> when you think of it, some of the shops that were pulled down 
in the high street to make way for that and the mall, some of those were medieval. They'd been there for hundreds of years. They'd been modernised, there'd been new fascias put on. If you want to see one of them now, you'd have to go to the Museum of London and look at the front of the old chemist shop, Rainer's, which is now on display in the Museum of London. Ah. And you look at it and you think, wow, that was actually a real-life chemist. I can remember going in there as a child, but it's gone from the high street. And we had the yards, I suppose, didn't we, as well? Um, renowned for being slightly dodgy goings-on in, in many yards of Uxbridge. Do you recall those? Oh, certainly one of them by the side of Harmon's Brewery, um, I think, was responsible for my love of beers, real ales, because I used to go up there on my way to school because I went, used to go for a while to Park Lodge School, which, of course, is, no longer exists because it's uh, disappeared under what's now uh, called Park Road. Park Road was there, but it hadn't been widened. Mm. And going up that alleyway between uh, Harmon's Brewery on one side, and they used to clean out the barrels. I think it was high-pressure steam or something. And the smell... Of the ale. <laughs> if you're an ale drinker, I can tell you, if you're a youngster, you get to really love that smell of fresh ale. Yeah. Oh, I can almost smell it now in my mind and uh, look forward to a decent pint tonight, I think. What about the cinemas? Because Uxbridge has always had a couple of cinemas on the go, hasn't it? You've had, um, we had the Regal and the Odeon that was down by the bottom of Harefield Road. Do you remember those? Yes, actually we had three at one point, we had the Odeon, the Savoy, and the Regal. The Savoy was definitely a bit more downbeat, down market. Um, but the Odeon and the Regal vied with each other for who was the top notch. Oh. The Regal, I think, really stole a bit when we had the creation of the borough because it had a programme of concerts there, including, if I remember rightly, the Halle Orchestra okay. performed there, and John Ogden. As for the Odeon, its main thing was it was, it was down where the trolley buses used to turn round, ah. the trolley bus terminus. That also was a very nice uh, Art Deco building, and uh, I greatly miss the mural that was on the uh, the top of the stairs going up to the balcony, which was a mural of Uxbridge as it was, and uh, that was quite quite impressive to look at. I gather the uh, ballroom in the Regal is now the snooker hall. Oh, I don't know that for sure. I know the keyboard from the original organ has been saved. Oh, yes. It used to be quite a splendid organ, mm. but definitely above there, there used to be the ballroom, the Regal ballroom. Wow. Um, a lot of people know about Burton's ballroom, but uh, the Regal was... Uh, a bit more plush. Yeah, Burton's was, um, looking back in history, um, seeing who played at, at Burton's, there's some real 60s names, weren't they, going back? I mean, I think you had Cliff Richard, um, maybe even The Who, I think, may have played at Burton's. Well, I'm glad you told me that because I'm now heartbroken that I must have missed The Who there <laughs> uh, as someone who actually was quite, uh, quite taken by The Who's uh, sound. So um, staying with Uxbridge for a few more minutes, do you recall much in terms of Uxbridge industry? I mean, it was always the canal that brought a lot of the um, industry to Uxbridge, I suppose, and the industrial estate was kind of 
very much grew up so. around there. Um, Uxbridge is an interesting one industrially. Certainly, walking down Cowley Mill Road, which was very close to me, and uh, I can recall the smell of the gasworks, and it really felt industrial. And you'd see at night, you could see the welding, the, the glow from welding torches and things in the workshops, and the sound of the hooter. <laughs> because in those days it was the sound of the hooter and swarms of bicycles coming up Cowley Mill Road and uh, going across the road because cars were quite a rarity in the uh, mm. 50s and the sight of these some three, four, sometimes five abreast and got out any vehicles that got in the way. You know, they didn't stand a chance. As for the area, the canal, that was in decline. Yeah. But you still had some stuff, activity around the gas works with canals. It sounds awful to say it now, but I can recall signs in the uh, pub windows down Cowley Mill Road saying, no water gypsies served here. (laughs) That would be absolutely unthinkable now. And uh, we know what they mean, but this was, it was a different age. Yeah. And the di- they had different values and different expectations. Um, one of the things as a child I recall in, in Cowley Mill Road was a fish and chip shop that was in a, sh- a shed or shack almost at the side of one of the houses. In fact, you can still see where it was if you know which house had a rather large space by the side of it. Do you recall the, the train that used to run from um, Vine Street? Very much so. And it used to run excursions. And I can remember going on those excursions with my family. Used to go to the Vine Street Station and there'd be all uh, flyers. A trip to Bournemouth or a trip to Margate or or South End. And you would go along to the station, you would get on the train and you'd be going to West Drayton where it would be connected up to some other bits of uh, rolling stock. And off you would go for a, a nice day away in the in the seaside. Oh, wow. And, of course, earlier I can remember standing on the bridge because we had two bridge, footbridges across the across the railway there and watching the trains going back and forward. I'd forgotten about trolley buses as well. That's something else, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, was it, really? Well, the beauty of the trolley bus is you didn't need track in the road. There were actual buses. They had ah. overhead power. Right which caused quite excitement because um, they used to have a, a huge bamboo pole underneath to re-hook them when they came adrift. Oh. And that usually didn't happen in Uxbridge. But uh, if you were going up to Hayes, and as I said, I've got I had friends who lived in Hayes, they um, had a nasty habit. When they got to the Grapes Road Junction, um, there was... A points in the overhead wires because the trolley bus also used to go down to Hayes Town and as it went across the points they often unhooked themselves and came crashing down onto the roof of the trolley bus (laughs) and the crew would sort of get out extract this huge great pole and attempt to uh, re-hook and reconnect to the overhead power line Sounds very um, unhealth and safety, but um, uh, yes. But as I think I've already hinted at, that was, it was a different age. Yes. But the beauty of them was a they were electric and they were very very quiet. Yeah, of course. 
they had to go where the wires were, of course. You couldn't veer off anywhere else. But, oh, that uh, was the argument for getting rid of them, wasn't mm. it? It was the argument about getting rid of the railway lines and, uh, as Beeching so delightfully said, everyone's going to go back on the road. And mm. uh, here we are with HS2 carving its way through the borough. Yes, that's a whole another story. It is. Gosh, there's, there's material for many, many future uh, chats, I think. Uh, we haven't even got time for your uh, uh, stories from the council. I'm sure you've got <laughs> many, many, my, many stories my from lips meetings. Are sealed on that. <laughs> I can assure you, as 13 years as chief whip, uh, I do know where the bodies are buried, and uh, some of the secrets that people would not necessarily want uh, revealed. And no, I'm not telling. Just a quick question: How much weight did you put on as mayor? Not very much, actually, oh. um, because <laughs> you had to develop some strategies because you could pile it on. Oh, yeah. But mainly it was because um, you found that the meals were somewhat unpredictable. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the strangest one, we went to an event, a Christmas event, and it was being organised by a um, huge organisation of um, Asian origin. And we walked in and we could see this huge buffet and it smelled gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And, and I was sort of thinking there, oh, let me loose at it. <laughs> and we all sat down and there was a couple of other mayors there from neighbouring boroughs and we were all sitting there and happily waiting. And then they came up and said, we appreciate it's Christmas. We've done this specially for you. We've got turkey. Oh, no. Could have wept. <laughs> Had to smile. <laughs> <laughs> you did have to sometimes sort of think, actually, they're doing their best. Uh, and it's it's the spirit that matters, which, of course, with Christmas, you have to always think. And it doesn't matter whether it's that strange present some relative has given you. Yeah. You know, thought was what counted. Um, exactly. That, yes. that was really the that was the really nice bit about it. Yeah. Well, one day I'm going to persuade the uh, the current mayor in this parlour to talk me through all the gifts and mementos that are sat in the mayor's parlour there. There's all kinds of maces and, and knives and all those kind of things. There's a story behind every one of them, I'm sure, but um, one day we'll get in there and have a chat. Well, there certainly is, and the story of maces in itself is quite a fascinating one. And if you really want a good story about a mace, Kingston-upon-Thames mace, uh -huh. it could tell a really good story about political change uh, in this country. Wow. Well, there's a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, shall we leave it there for today? And maybe we'll catch up with you again in the future for a, uh, another series of, of stories from George. That would be great. But for now, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> it's a pleasure, and I hope I haven't bored too many people to sleep. No, no, that's great. I think it will conjure up memories for some people of just little tidbits. Of, oh, yeah, great. We used to go to the Odeon or we used to go to the... So-and-so place. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. Thank you. George Cooper there. Definitely someone who, once he starts talking, it's hard to stop. Now, I'm sure everyone has had a dodgy text, email or phone call, and it's getting harder to figure out the legitimate messages from the fake ones. We're joined by Mark Mullally and Sally Schofield, both community bankers at NatWest, Mark, I guess, COVID times, you'd be touring libraries and 
community groups, but um, now online raising awareness of scams. Yeah, that's true, Steve. I mean, with the coronavirus and everybody sort of being sort of under lockdown and trying to restrict movements around, um, a lot of our work is now done via sort of Zoom and, and Teams, whereby we're connecting with local community groups and are running scam and fraud awareness sessions that way. I think basically over the last 18 months, the world's changed quite a lot. And basically everybody's had to adapt with regards to their current situations. Unfortunately, the crooks and the scammers are adapting along with everything else that's happening at the moment. They're using the same type of techniques, but they're just using the different issues and problems that have been raised. For instance, problems with PPE, testing kits, things like that, as their camouflage of making their approaches to customers. I think over the last 18 months, um, we've seen a lot of approaches around coronavirus-related scams, uh, but also there's been a massive increase in investment scams and also uh, romance or uh, what we call befriending scams as well. So, Sally, what are the sort of clues we can watch out for? How do we know it's a scam? So we've seen lots and lots of text scams coming in, especially for the coronavirus ones. Um, they've changed their, their wording. It started off with text saying that you had to click on a link to pay, pay the fine that you, you know, been caught outside when we, we had the lockdown originally. And then it's moved on to things like vaccine emails and texts and people are getting messages to say that they need to click on a link to book their appointment or even pay for the vaccine, which we know is um, something that isn't requested from you when you when you get vaccinated. So, yeah, as Mark said, they've changed their tact as they go along and they're using the coronavirus um, to their advantage. Uh, we're now seeing ones about passports. So everybody's wanting to go on holiday Obviously, as things unlock a little bit more, hopefully in the next few weeks, people wanted to go away, maybe haven't had their passport renewed. And we're now getting people getting texts saying that if you click on this link, it will be done speedier than if you went via the passport office. So, yeah, the, the scammers are using this opportunity um, to their advantage. And Mark, I know there's been scams that are tiny amounts, um, so people perhaps don't report those. But um, if you're scammed for a larger amount... What's the sort of first thing you should be thinking about doing? Okay, I think, Steve, if you've given either a payment away or you've given out financial information away to somebody that you think perhaps you shouldn't have done so, the first thing is to do is to report it to your bank. If you've made a payment, uh, then unfortunately, the scammers will move the money around really, really quickly. They'll have it all set up. But by informing your bank, we will then do our best to try to recover the money as quickly as we can. Um, we'll also ring fence the account, which basically means that if they try to tap the account again or they're looking to get some more information, then we'll put extra security measures in place. There is the, the banking codes um, authorised push payment voluntary code, whereby it, initially it was the top nine banks in the UK back in 2016 got together with regards to how they can support victims of scams and return the money to them. But now I believe it's the top 14 banks in the country. Very briefly, what that, what that means is that under the voluntary code, there's a potential that you might get your money returned or part of your money returned. But it's very dependent upon the sophistication of the scam and also the vulnerability of the victim. And basically what's, what's actually happened was there um, part fault with the bank, or either side, either sending the money or receiving the payment on the other side. Was there a part fault with the victim? Were they hadn't done their due diligence with regards to making sure they've identified the person before making the payment. So again, there is a possibility that people may get the money returned. I think the main thing, though, is, is that people take 
sort of basic, simple steps to avoid falling into the trap of actually making a payment to somebody. Um, and most people, if they've, if they've got a mobile banking app on their, on their phone or, or they use their computer at home, and they're setting up a new instruction now, a lot of the banks will use what we call a confirmation of payee, which basically means that when you input the, the name of the account, the account number and sort code, the system, if, if that bank is on as part of the system, will actually verify the, the name matches the account details. Again, though, it comes back to the fact that if someone makes a payment and it turns out to be going to a crook, it, it's their mistake. The banks aren't required at the moment to reimburse somebody for their mistakes. We're there to help and support and protect. But obviously, when people are in a vulnerable situation, sometimes you know, they don't always follow the instructions that are on the computers. Yeah. And uh, Sally, I suppose that's that's great for consumers. Are there any tips for businesses? Maybe you're doing some commercial property transaction. You need to send first month's rent to a new person. Should you be calling them up maybe and getting verification of the bank details? I know there's been some scams where people have interfered with email systems and got uh, bank, bank details changed. What can companies watch out for? Um, to be fair, it's exactly the same thing, really. They just need to make sure that if they are sending money to anybody, that they have verified exactly who that account um, belongs to, that the details are correct, not act on an email that may have came, you know, come in during the transaction to say that somebody suddenly changed their bank details. Always, always phone the person and check it out before you send any money. Because as Mark said, unfortunately, once the money has gone, it's very difficult for us to, one, get it back and trace it through because it moves very, very quickly and usually ends up abroad. Um, And once that money has disappeared, if the person has made the mistake, it it may be that you won't get that money reimbursed by the bank. For businesses, exactly the same, really. It's just about checking. I would say exactly the same process with regards to, you know, if it's unexpected, if it's putting you under pressure, then you Mm. need to set up a few minutes to think about it. Also, from a business point of view, it might be an idea to look at who's got access to your software. Does everybody need access to the payment software? Does everybody need access to the security software? If someone's left or somebody's joined, have they updated and checked accessibility? Because basically, what we tend to find is that if someone perhaps lower down in in the organisation is targeted, but they have access to making payments without somebody double-checking it or verifying it, then the company's losing money that way. Charities as well, there's um, what we call spear phishing, whereby uh, people within an organisation are, are specifically targeted. And again, information data, the scammers are collecting this information before they make their approaches. So they're looking at things like LinkedIn to finding out who Sally's connected with on LinkedIn. Is it part of the same company? Is it her boss? Is it perhaps somebody beneath her? So again, I think people have got to be mindful of the information that they're sharing or making public to people. Another type of phishing that's um, targeting organisations and businesses as well is what they call whaling. Um, and again, this is where they're going for the business owner or the CEO. And again, once they've been able to make contact with them or impersonate them and then send an email to one of their subordinates saying, well, I need, to, I need somebody to make a payment straight away. If your boss is telling you to make a payment urgently and you're not able to pick up the phone to them, there's a possibility you're going to make that payment because you don't want to get on the wrong side of your boss. Yeah, you see some texts come through where, oh, the boss wants to send some Amazon vouchers mm. to the <laughs> quickly. It must go, must go immediately or whatever. 
Do yeah. um, do credit cards offer any protection? If we're paying by credit card, is there more chance of being protected, Sally? Yes, you you have much more protection by using a credit card for payments online. And we would always recommend that you use a credit card. It's that one step away from your bank account, isn't it? It's not directly linked to the funds you've got available in your bank account. So if something goes wrong, it's a separate issue and it can be dealt with separately. You are covered under the Consumer Credit Act. So you are protected. And if something has happened on your credit card account, like your bank account, if it's a fraud, and um, it's something that you haven't had any th- any dealings with, and you know you suddenly noticed an entry on your account that you've not authorised, then you will get that money back from the bank. But if you've actually given away your details or purposely sent money from your account, that's when it changes into a scam, and you may not always get reimbursed. And if they are successful in scamming money, it's, I shouldn't really say this. It's not your money that's being lost; it's the credit card company's money. I suppose they're not really um, scams, but I guess you've probably seen a big increase in people reporting subscriptions, particularly when it comes to things like gaming, um, Xbox and subscription to apps and things, especially when your accounts are linked to kids and um, they're subscribing, maybe unknown to them. They've hit buy and not knowing that it's actually signing up to a subscription. that must be a, there must be a huge increase in in those kinds of inquiries through the bank, I'd imagine. Yeah, again, we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, originally it was around sort of health products. It was like medications and health cures and stuff like that, whereby you were getting a fantastic discount on a sample. But then it turns out if you haven't read the small print, you're actually agreeing to a subscription. They start taking this, this payment on a regular basis. Because you've signed up to it and you haven't read the terms and conditions, then Again, there's that grey area. That's been some some great advice. Where can we go for more information? Is there a, a website on how to avoid scams? Yeah, well, there's the Trading Standards Friends Against Scams website. That's the first place I would go. Action Fraud as well. They're the organisation that work with the police services to support victims. I'd also, for people that perhaps, you know, know a little bit about computers and mobile phones, but they're not particularly au okay with malware and spyware, then there's a fantastic website called Get Safe Online. Again, with that particular website, it covers everything, like from shopping online using your debit and credit cards to malware, spyware, to how you keep your phone more secure. Visit your your bank's website. Your bank will have a, a fraud website. Definitely have a look there. They'll have loads and loads of information, advice, and guidance. If you are receiving a strange email or a text message, from a, a large organisation, be it perhaps a water company, electricity board, visit their website. They'll have a fraud reporting page as well. One of the things we would always say, though, is that if you get that strange text or email, make sure you don't respond. But if you feel comfortable to, then re- report it up the line, forward it on to Action Fraud, report it to the organisation, the email or text messages to be um, purporting to be from. But I think the, the overall message we would give is, if something does come out of the blue, if you're not expecting the, the text or the email and it's got a link, don't click on it. Use your gut instinct. Check it out first. And if you're unhappy, call your bank and we can always have, uh, have a look and, and help you. Um, but don't click on something just because it says that there's an urgency to it um, because that's what they want you to do. Um, and unfortunately, once you've clicked on it, it could then already have done the damage. 
Well, Sally and Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Hopefully we can avoid at least somebody being scammed um, in the future. And um, we'll keep in touch with what the current scams are. Thank you very much for having us. No worries. Take care. If you're looking to trace your family tree, a great resource is the Hillingdon Family History Society. I spoke to John Simmons, who's vice chairman of the society. Tell us, first of all, how long has the society been going for? Well, we were formed in 1988. It started with a, an adult education class that was, was running in uh, at Hillingdon, and it spread from there. And they, the people involved decided they'd like to set up a society to continue it. And the, the decision was taken to uh, form it to um, promote the uh, study of family history with particular reference to the Borough of Hillingdon. And it's gone from strength to strength, I would say, since then. And tell us sort of how often you meet and um, what you chat about at the meetings and um, that sort of thing. We have a programme of meetings, um, monthly meetings, most months of the year. Of course, this year and last year, we've been uh, struck with the virus concerns. So we've been moving to online meetings and they've been... um, quite successful in interesting ways because we've brought in people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get physically to our meetings. We normally uh, meet at the uh, Hindon Park Baptist Church in Hersey's Road, and um, but obviously we haven't been able to do that. And uh, we have members not only within Hillingdon, but across the country and indeed across the world. So they're able to join us for our meetings so there's swings and roundabouts on this one and do you offer a service where someone can come to you and you can help them trace their family history yes indeed in normal circumstances we have a research room and what we have been doing up to beginning of last year was to have a, a research room available at Hillingdon Park Baptist Church where people could get informed advice on how to research their family history so we don't, wouldn't just leave people to it. You know, we, we have a team of volunteers, quite keen volunteers, who are, who are able to go through, unravel people's histories and put them on the right lines. And then once a month, we would offer the same service at Duxbridge Library. So um, in both cases, yes, we, we do aim to, to help people to get on their way. And that's one of the main aims of the society, is to help people to trace their family history in some ways, it's changed a lot since I was involved in doing it, in that when I set out to do any serious work, you had to go and either visit archives in London or wherever, or the National Archives, or go and visit local record offices, the area you're interested in. Nowadays, of course, it's changed, but in some ways, it's more complex than ever now, because a lot, but no means all records are online, but it's a matter of knowing where to look. And that's what we try and tell people, because otherwise it's a bit of a maze for people sitting out wondering, well, where do I start? You know, what do I do? So we're aiming to give that advice. What kind of resources do you have access to? I mean, I suppose the average person can join Ancestry or there's other ones available, aren't there, that they can then look at other people's family trees and get suggestions. But it's always finding evidence, isn't it, of the birth certificates yeah, and things. Absolutely right. Yes, yeah. it's a matter of... Uh, Telling people, you know, what 
other people's family trees are an interesting point because uh, you can indeed look at other people's and they can be helpful. They're not always correct, though, and you need to be careful there. They're only as good as the people who put it together, and for whatever reason, they may not always be accurate. Unfortunately, one of the problems that does occur on Ancestry and the other sites is that people will tend to copy what other people have put in without checking for themselves. And that can lead people up false trails. So just because a number of people say, oh, yes, well, so-and-so was my ancestor, it isn't necessarily so. Our recommendation, what we try and encourage people to do, is independently check for yourself. Look up the records. Go to the prime sources. Civil registration, for example, births, marriages and deaths. Everybody should have their births, their marriage and their death registered, certainly since 1837. Then we have censuses, which, as you probably know, have taken every 10 years. And at the moment, we've got censuses available from 1841 through to 1911. And the 1921 census will be available next year. There are other sources like wills and parish records for people going back further into time as well. And then there's what we might call secondary sources, things like newspapers, uh, workplace records, military records, education records, all sorts of references. And the more you get, the more informed your research will be. Also, of course, there's these new DNA tests, aren't they? You can send off for... I wonder if you're going to mention that. Yes, yeah, because I was going to mention it if you didn't. The DNA gives us a, a new angle They're not a replacement for what we might call conventional research, but an addition to it. In other words, my view, certainly, I think of many others as well, is that you'll get the best from DNA if you have done your proper research, you know, followed your paper trails back properly, and then, by all means, take a DNA test because the, the DNA results will give you information that will enable you to at best it will certainly confirm hopefully it will confirm what you've been doing but of course it will open up uh, new angles that you probably weren't aware of it certainly in my case that's been the case and how far back can dna prove your ancestry to well uh, dna is i mean i could i could talk for hours about dna and I've, but really there's different types of dna tests the most commonly used DNA test now is what we call the autosomal test, which is the ones that Ancestry and other providers commonly focus on. They measure the closeness of relationships across all your family members. But the trouble with autosomal is they degrade significantly as you go back. So they're very reliable for close relationships, you know, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, sisters, and almost 100% correct. I mean, I found that I can go back four or five generations. And if you can do that and you can substantiate that with your uh, paper research, you know, it gives you that nice feeling, okay, you've got it right. There are other types of DNA tests, however, that will take you back further. There's the, the Y-DNA test, which is, which is one of the first ones out, and which just takes your male line back. And there's a mitochondrial DNA test, which takes your female line back. And that goes back a long way. You can go back hundreds and hundreds of years. The one thing I would say is um, don't expect great results just from DNA without doing other types of research, because a lot of people just have a DNA test for Christmas or whatever, 
and they will take the, the tests and they will get their results and they will put the trees on and wonder why nothing much has happened except that you, you might tell you about your ethnicity uh, background which is interesting but not particularly helpful if you want to trace individuals. So tell us how we can get in touch if somebody wants to join or come and see you. How can they get in touch with you? Website. That's the, that's the best. That's our best website, hfhs.org.uk. And that will give you links to everything you would need to know about this. It's also got links to you can email us from there. And if you're interested, you can join there. You can join online. The membership pay costs from... £10 a year for an individual. And we'd like people to join us because, first of all, it helps us, it gives us encouragement, and we like to encourage people to come along. And I think one of the most important things is that we can give them more personal advice that way. And hopefully we, when we actually can meet them again in person, and we can do that. But but even when we, we haven't been able, we've been able to conduct Zoom lessons and online sessions other means of contacting people. So we kept the ship afloat that way, if you like. And and I would say, finally, don't think that just because you don't have family from Hillingdon, it isn't relevant to you. We can help you trace your family wherever it is. We tend to focus on Hillingdon because we have a better information about what happens locally, you know, where the records are and so forth. We can and do trace people certainly from all other parts of the United Kingdom and indeed overseas as well. Finally, have you got any um, stories of you know, people that you found in, in history? Maybe you found a relations to a king or a, or a sir? Or... Yeah, 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 it does happen, of course, but it's very rare. It's not as common as people might think. In all the years I've been doing it, which is quite a few now, and the people have come to it, I think I've had two with proven royal connections. And I don't think it's so important whether you're related to royalty. What, what I think, actually, to my mind, what gives me the most satisfaction is to find that you're related to somebody interesting. Yeah. I think I've been quite fortunate, really, in my own research. That really, why I got involved in it was uh, because I had a family story that I had ancestors who were convicted and sent to Australia for uh, cattle stealing. And, and I pretty much thought it was probably correct, but it turned out to be a much more involved story than I'd, than I'd appreciated. But they were interesting, and because whether they're good or bad people, as I always said, if you, it's great if you can have great good people, you know, honest, upright people. But if you can't, not everybody can, it's best to have a few black sheep as well, because if you have a few black sheep, it means that they leave a paper trail behind them if it's just a state of convictions and trials and assizes and, and in his case, transportation. In fact, in the case of my Australians, they did quite well in Australia, probably far better than they would have been if they stayed in England. What I really like to find on behalf of people is, you know, is for people to find other interesting people in their families that they didn't know about. And that is far more common. If it leaves them feeling happy and oh, I've learned something I never knew about, then I think that's great. And I think that it's good for them and it's good for us. John Simmons there from the Hillingdon Family History Society. Finally this month, let's talk gardens. So we're joined by Jerry Edwards, who is at Jerry Edwards Orchard Services. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? I'm all right. Now, what should we be doing in our garden this month in June? 
very interesting, isn't it? We've got these period of very dry, hot weather, and then we've got periods of wet weather coming up. It's very hard to manage to govern these conditions. But what we do need to recognise is that if we get three days of wet weather, that water in the ground will quickly dry out and won't last for five days of hot weather. So we do need to be watering where we have planted containers, newly planted trees and shrubs in the ground, and anything that looks deserving of watering. Anything that's been growing in the ground for over a year, let the roots get into the soil and around here where it's another clay or gravel, they'll be down there. But just be aware that if you've got heavy rain, it doesn't last for very long. And um, is it fine to, to plant stuff in the sort of dry, dry garden now? Absolutely. There's still plenty of bedding plants to buy from garden centres and some particularly good deals at this time of the year because a lot of garden centres have got some left over. You can often buy two packs of the price of one. Perfect time to go and buy them. But as I've mentioned, the critical um, thing is to get them well watered in. When you plant them in dry ground, I suggest you water the area first because the ground is so hard at the present time. Lots of the rain bounces off, so water the ground where you plant. Dig a hole, plant, and then immediately water anything you planted. Then every day in really hot weather like this, give everything a good soaking. It really is dry, and newly planted plants uh, will need that water, but they will thrive. They will get away really quickly in these conditions. In terms of sort of more orchards and, and fruit trees, are there things we can be doing with those at this time of year? Well, actually, this is the time of year. We have off very slightly. Just having gone to the winter time of pruning or restoring uh, and then monitoring trees during blossom in um, March, April and um, early to mid-May. We've got a little period of time now of enjoying the orchard before we start looking at pruning at the end of July, beginning of August and then harvesting in, in September. Just enjoy your orchard, enjoy your fruit. If you do see any sign of pests, Leave them well alone. I'm an organic grower. There's no pesticides available anyway. Just keep an eye on everything and enjoy what is growing. Pick soft fruits, soft fruits such as raspberries, strawberries, gooseberries will be starting to ripen fairly quickly, as will black currants and maybe some early red currants. Just pick them when they're ripe. But enjoy. This is, say, this is the period of time we got off. Beginning of July, we'll start thinning fruits if we need to. But just enjoy the next couple of weeks and admire and enjoy. Are there particular fruit trees that do well in this area? Well, yes. I mean, part of this area, part of this area, and I, I'm in Pinn, not far from Muxbridge, we're on really good clay soil, and clay soil is fantastic for fruit trees because the roots get into the ground and survive. Now, um, some parts of Uxbridge and West Drayton, uh, the soil is gravel underlying, and so the roots don't get into quite so much goodness. But there is some goodness there. So it's pretty good in the northern part of the borough and area where there's clay and apple trees in particular thrive in these conditions. In fact, well, it's hard to believe the best apples in the world are grown on clay soils. Ah, there's a secret. <laughs> That's not true, true, is it? So all the growing areas around the world um, who grow apples well will either be growing on good clay soils or having to excavate the ground, a lot of muck in the ground and keep them well fed. But we're very lucky around here. And I grow 300 different fruit trees here, and they all thrive in these conditions. Tell us about what you're doing on a sort of day-to-day -day basis at the moment. Well, primarily, I, I'm an advisor for the Royal Horticultural Society on, on fruit growing. Ah. I'm also chair of the UK Orchard Network, and spend a lot of our time talking about fruit trees, walking around orchards, advising people how to grow fruit. Not necessarily in orchards, but elsewhere, because an orchard can brise of three or four trees. 
So we advise people how to grow trees, how to restore old orchards. There's lots of old orchards in this area and the southern part of the country. We look at restoring and advising on restoring. And then later in the year, September, October, I spend much of my time identifying apple varieties people have growing in their gardens or have found. So it's a full-on job. It's a very interesting job. And are there particular good apple varieties for things like cider at the moment or anything around here? That's a long story. What's your favourite beer? What's your favourite more whiskey? It's very hard to say. Everyone's got their own favourite. Yeah. But generally speaking, there's two types of cider apples. There's the real cider apples, which are bred for cider making. They can be very sharp, very sweet, and they be bittersweet. And the cider growers love them. And they generally grow in the western part of the country. But any apples that people have in their garden can be converted into fruit juice, or apple juice it is, and then that can be converted into cider. Now, a cider might not be particularly nice, but you can make your own cider at home. I'm not sure how legal, legal that is, but you can make your own cider at home for home consumption, as of any apple you've got. But the best ciders are made for specific varieties or those which have been selected to mix with others. Great. Well, good advice there, Jerry. Thank you very much. That's great. That's all right. And that's all for this month's podcast. Do get involved and let us know what you're up to. We'd love to chat to you. The email is studio at uxbridgefm.co.uk. We're on social media, just search Uxbridge FM. Do subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app so you get new episodes as soon as they're out. Thanks to all our guests and to Chris Allen for helping out and to local musician Luca Nieri for the music. Also thanks to London Media Lounge. We're using their studios They have podcast facilities and video studios in Uxbridge for creating your content. Just search London Media Lounge for more information. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next month. 